Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting to you from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. We're actually soliciting suggestions for what to call the uh, the house, the new place I will be living, which is actually on the outskirts of northern Durham at this point, northeast Durham. So I'm basically crisscrossing the county. Uh, don't know when the actual move is going to take place. I just know it's sometime within the next two months. My apartment lease ends December 31st. I am mildly terrified. The house is ready to go. The girlfriend is moving in tomorrow, and uh, we're recording this on Sunday. So she's going to move in on Monday, and it has been... An adventure. So like we got the house for a, a very affordable price given what we were purchasing because it had some defects. And one defect that we did not know about until the inspection was that we had to make some foundation fixes. Did that. Uh, that caused cracks in the walls. So we had to repaint. Then we had to clean up from the paint. And anyhow, long story short, I think I probably told you that during the last podcast because the story has not really changed. But all that stuff finally finished. Uh, on Friday, we had the last set of cleaners in to clean up all of the paint residue and everything else. And uh, everything is now getting moved in tomorrow. So it's interesting. Slightly terrifying, if I'm being honest. I've, I've not lived in a house since I was in Virginia Beach before coming to college way back in 1998. I have lived in a variety of apartments in the 21 years since then. I've lived in this particular apartment that I'm recording from right now for over 10 years. I moved here in August of 2009 for law school, and I have not left. Uh, Mrs. Marjean, who is my next-door neighbor on the left, is the only other person who has been here as long as I have. Everyone else in my building, we've cycled through multiple neighbors. So a little terrified, kind of excited, but we will see how, how this all goes down. Uh, okay, a few podcast notes. So on October 28th, which is two Mondays from now, I am going to be out of town. So I will not have a regular podcast. We are aiming to have our next entry of what the FISC put into place, the one that we had started a few months ago. We're going to try and finish that up. Plus, if you have new questions, feel free to send them to us using the hashtag FISC. That's hashtag F-S-C-K. Uh, we did have one more unexpected charity fundraiser. I thought we were done with fundraisers until December when we do the food drive, but Faith. Bailey, who we typically raise money for in the spring, uh, sent us a request for the Riverwood Elementary Remix, which is basically a dance party of sorts. They are raising money for STEM education. So we put a call out on Twitter and raised $1,739 in less than 24 hours. So much obliged to everyone who helped out. Uh, Faith was very excited. I'm frankly kind of surprised because we were trying to get to 1000 by midnight. She had raised $70 on her own. And we blew past a thousand when I went to bed, and when I woke up, we had another several hundred more in. So thank you to everyone who participated with that. A special shout out and thanks to Emmett Plant, who is at m underscore initiative on Twitter. You may know him from the Threadknot Twitter banners that have been rotating throughout the past however many months. Uh, he put together the cover art for today's episode. So I was going to pitch where you can buy him a coffee. He told me not to do that. Uh, so I am instead telling you, go follow him on Twitter. He is at M-E-M-M underscore initiative. And we will have a Law 140 for this particular episode. We're going to go over, a, it's a high level, so I've got to emphasize that, a high level overview of the appellate process 
because one particular case in Texas uh, has been dismissed in its entirety with prejudice. I don't want to spoil it, but if you saw the cover art, you probably know what I'm talking about. So before we get into all of that stuff, if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. You can follow the podcast Twitter account at Fiskemall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a written comment, you can do that on the website, Fiskemall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial supporters, the people who help pay Mike the Sound Guy, provide our hosting and all that other fun stuff, you can do that through Patreon at Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. I'm not really going to go into the politics this week again. I'm going to be honest with you. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks back. I am so lost at how like the news cycle is just so fucking accelerated with all of the shit going on on any given day. It's difficult for me to keep track. And I'm a news junkie. Like I'm on Twitter all the damn time. Uh, but we had this stuff going on with Ukraine. Impeachment inquiry has started. Rudy Giuliani is now under federal investigation because it turns out he's really good friends with two Ukrainian businessmen who are trying to buy foreign influence. Both of those guys have pictures with Donald Trump since long before Trump was ever a politician. Uh, so there's just a lot of a lot of corruption and shenanigans and chicanery taking place in the White House. And in addition to that, we're now having serious on-the-ground consequences because, for example, the president has decided it is right and good to betray the Kurds, our allies in the Middle East, and abandon them. So now Turkey is moving into northern Syria trying to wipe out all of the Kurdish people, and that's just a natural impact of Trump's foreign policy. Republicans are now a threat to national security, if you can believe that. Like, I never thought I would see the day when that happened. I grew up as a Reagan baby. You know, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, that sort of thing. So to see Republicans just totally shit the bed on national security blows my fucking mind. And they've been doing it for three years now. Uh, but we're not going to get into that because, frankly, it pisses me off. And it's frankly, I don't even know all of the details of everything that's going on because there's just so much of it all the time. Let's jump into court news. And I only have one court case. It is in Tarrant County, Texas, Fort Worth. The lawsuit by Vic Mignogna for libel slander has been dismissed in its entirety. So let me read you a, uh, a brief snippet from Dallas Morning News. It says, quote, In a pivotal hashtag MeToo moment for the multi-million dollar anime industry, Grapevine-based voice actor Vic Mignogna, long hounded by allegations of inappropriate behavior toward women, lost big in court on Friday. State District Judge John Chupp dismissed the remaining claims in the defamation lawsuit that the Dragon Ball star Mignogna filed in April against his former employer, two of his Dallas area colleagues, and the fiance of one of the women. Chup's action came after mediation efforts this week failed to get a resolution. I'm going to insert here. There's probably a reason why the mediation failed, because one side knew all of this was going to get dismissed, and the other side was convinced they still had a shot. That's just my guess from reading the room. Story continues, quote, Friday's decision left Mignogna 0 for 17. Holy shit, lost all 17 claims uh, in his legal battle, as Chupp already had dismissed 12 of the claims, which included defamation, tortious interference, and conspiracy during an early September hearing. I'm not petty normally, but I want to go ahead and say, I told you so. I told you back on June 6th, when all this shit started popping off, that this was going to happen. Since then, I have been doxxed. I've been suspended from Twitter twice. I've had the Google reviews for my law firm tanked into the shitter by a bunch of fake reviews that Google refuses to correct. 
And you know what? I was right the whole fucking time. So I don't think any of the chuds that are in my mentions are listening to this podcast, but I'm going to take a victory lap because fuck it, I told you so four months ago. Uh, So the Law 140 is going to be on the appeals process. Again, have to emphasize it is a general thing. It's not Texas specific. A lot of the same stuff will apply in Texas, but uh, we're going to talk about kind of next steps for this case, assuming that Vic wants to appeal, which would make him a total fucking idiot if he did. But I have no doubt that his lawyers are encouraging him to do that because that means more money for them. Uh, in federal criminal justice fuckery, we've got two cases with our favorite set of rogue agencies, Customs and Border Protection. I'm putting that in air quotes and ICE. Uh, let's start with CBP. So at a Dallas or Dulles, excuse me, I, I really, that's a big fuck up right there. Dulles at the airport, a CBP officer illegally detained a journalist until the journalist would finally admit to writing propaganda, even though he's just a plain news journalist. That's how petty these fucking CBP agents are. From that story, it says, quote, a U.S. passport screening official held a Defense One journalist's passport until he received an affirmative answer to the repeated question, you write propaganda, right? The incident took place about 4 o'clock p.m. on Thursday at Dulles International Airport. News editor Ben Watson was returning from an assignment in Denmark when he entered permanent resident reentry aisle number 17 at Dulles. After the Customs and Border Protection official asked the usual question about undeclared fruit or meat, the interaction took an unusual and unsettling turn. Watson recalls the conversation. The CBP officer, while holding Watson's passport, said, What do you do? Watson responded, journalism, the CBP officer said. So you write propaganda, huh? Uh, Watson said, no. The CBP officer said, you're a journalist? Watson said, yes. Officer said, so you write propaganda, right? Watson said, no, I'm in journalism, covering national security and homeland security. And with many of the same skills I used in the U.S. Army as a public affairs officer. Some would argue that's propaganda. The officer asked again, you're a journalist? Watson said, yes. An officer said one more time, you write propaganda, right? Watson waited a few seconds and then said, for the purposes of expediting this conversation, yes. And the officer asked a fourth time, you write propaganda, right? Watson said again, for the purposes of expediting this conversation, yes. And then the officer said, here you go, and handed him back his passport. The CBP official's behavior appeared to violate the spirit and possibly the letter of DHS's internal directive 0480.1, ethics slash standards of conduct, uh, the code of conduct section 102-74.445, and possibly U.S. Customs and Border Protection Directive 51735-013A, standards of conduct. Watson has filed a civil rights complaint with DHS. Fuck these people. Okay, seriously, fuck these people. I know there's no basis to sue them under 1983 because of the stupid fucking protections the courts have weaved from whole cloth to benefit rogue government actors. But Customs and Border Protection is a rogue agency, just like ICE. Speaking of ICE, holy shit. So this is down in Texas. We got a lot of stories in Texas this week. I just got to forewarn you. ICE has moved 700 detainees, women who have tried to immigrate into the United States, and refuses to indicate where they're located and won't even tell their attorneys. 
from that story. It says, quote, Immigration and Customs Enforcement moved more than 700 women, some of whom have critical medical conditions, out of a Texas detention center without giving their lawyers any way of finding them, according to immigrant rights attorneys. Starting on September 20th, the women being held at the Carnes County Residential Center were sent to other centers around the country so that the facility could be used to detain families instead. More than two weeks later, their lawyers from the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services have no idea where the majority of these women are being held, and they can't find any updated information in ICE's online detainee tracking system. The inability to track these immigrants could have fatal consequences if their health continues to deteriorate, according to Andrea Mazo, the Director of Family Detention Services at the center. Subquote, I'm really fearful that their conditions could worsen, Mazo said. I don't want them to be in another ICE press release about death in detention. The situation highlights a common problem for migrants in ICE custody. They can be transferred between facilities with little notice, and yet their new locations are not promptly updated in the system. If their existing lawyers and family members can't find them, they may have to go through their cases without legal representation, especially in remote areas where legal counsel is sparse. And those with serious health issues could die if advocates who don't know where their clients were transferred are unable to fight for their right to medical treatment. And it goes on from there. We'll give you a link in the show notes. I'm just going to point out a common theme that I have been saying for years now. How we treat detainees is an outrage. How we treat immigrants is an outrage. The fact that we tolerate ICE being a renegade rogue agency is an outrage. And yet it continues and it's been continuing for at least three, four years now. Uh, so hashtag abolish ICE. All right, let's get into the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. We'll start in Florida, uh, West Palm Beach County. A juror has been jailed for oversleeping. He delayed the case by an hour, and for that, he was put into jail for 10 days. It's utterly fucking ludicrous. From that story, it says, quote, For the rest of his life, DeAndre Somerville says he'll think about the 10 days he spent in jail. It's hard not to because he doesn't think he should have been there in the first place. The 21-year-old slept through his first jury duty. To punish him, a Florida judge, after chewing him out in court, sentenced him to 10 days in jail and a year of probation, plus a fine, plus ordered him to serve 150 hours of community service. Subquote, 24 hours in a day felt like 48 hours in a day. All I could do was think, being around criminals, now I am a criminal for doing something that's not even a real criminal act, Somerville told BuzzFeed News on Friday. Subquote, I had to tell myself I am not a criminal. Those 10 days were long and traumatic days. On August 20th, he was picked as a juror for a civil automobile accident negligence case in West Palm Beach County, Florida. The next day, when he was supposed to return to court for the continuation of the trial at 9 a.m., he woke up and realized he had overslept and missed his ride to the courthouse. So instead of finding another way to get there or calling the bailiff, he ran to work. He was scheduled to work an afternoon shift at his part-time job as a recreation specialist at a local park, a 10-minute walk from his home, leading youth activities. When he's not working, he's taking care of his grandfather, who lost 50% of his mobility due to a heart attack and uses a walker and scooter to get around. Somerville takes him shopping and to physical therapy and spends hours with him in the pool doing rehabilitation exercises. Subquote, I should have called. I own up to that. I made a mistake. But I didn't know I would go to jail. They don't tell you that if you miss jury duty, you go to jail, he said. Subquote, I don't even have a criminal record. And I'm going to note, because when I do these stories, I try and read different uh, versions of the story from different news outlets to find whatever one is best for y'all. Uh, and what they note 
is that his absence didn't even affect the case. It delayed the case by an hour while they were trying to figure out what was going on, and then they just replaced him with an alternate. So the rest of the case got handled. He didn't have to be there. So to give this guy 10 days active time, which is more than the vast majority of criminal offenses because so many of them are small misdemeanors. So he gets more jail time than most people, plus 150 hours of community service. I mean, holy shit. That's three and a half weeks, like a full-time job of community service that he has to do, plus paying a fine on top of it. That punishment is way in excess of the one hour that everyone got delayed. It's utterly ludicrous. You will be shocked, I'm sure, to discover that Mr. Somerville is black and the judge who gave him that sentence is white, but that is how they do in Florida. Uh, in Georgia, this, this story is just ridiculous. So they have a city called White, Georgia. So it's the city of white. Um, and this is, this is like some Alabama type shit. So a whole bunch of family members who have gotten themselves into different positions of power in the government uh, were engaged in high-end fraud and now have all been indicted for RICO. Sometimes it actually is RICO. Uh, so from that story, it says, quote, a former police chief, court clerk, and police officer, all family members, have been indicted in an alleged scheme to extort several people, threatening severe charges and jail time if the victims did not comply. Cherokee District Attorney Rosemarie Green said in the indictment that the city of White's police chief, David Johnny King, city clerk Jane Lynette Richards, who is King's wife, and police officer Blake Douglas Sheff operated an illegal enterprise to pocket ill-gotten gains using their positions in the city. As a result, each is now facing charges for violation of the Federal Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, known as RICO. The indictment alleges that between August 2009 and December 2017, I'm going to note, that's a long fucking time, eight years, to be running this type of scheme without getting caught. The trio illegally profited from their positions by way of a scheme that involved issuing city citations and demanding high fines and fees regardless of the actions of those being cited. In doing so, the indictment claims they illegally profited by negotiating fines to be paid on those city citations so that more serious charges would not appear on a person's criminal or driver history. If the victims did not comply, the three are accused of taking out state warrants and illegally imprisoning those victims in an attempt to intimidate others into falling in line. The indictment alleges that Police Chief King willfully made false statements regarding crimes committed by victims and accused them of crimes they didn't commit. The chief's wife, Richards, would then allegedly use her position, which carried the responsibility of collecting money paid to the city and depositing it in the bank, and use it to take money for her personal gain and that of the family. The indictment claims that she and King would collect the cash and Richards would deposit the money in the city's bank account. However, the allegation claims that on numerous occasions, the weekly deposits she made were missing money. During that same time, King allegedly made cash deposits into his own checking account. And there's a lot more. Like, this is a lengthy story. The RICO indictment is thorough. What finally brought it all to fruition is that King tried to run for mayor of the city in 2017, and he got beat. And in the weeks where the new administration was taking office... King, the police chief, and his wife, Richards, the clerk, uh, were discovered destroying city records, including they deleted the water department's entire software from the computers. So basically, they would charge these people with fake crimes, have high fines attached to it, negotiate a reduction that they would then pocket themselves 
if it worked, the clerk would help destroy the records. If it didn't work, they would put him in jail. It's just, it's so fascinating. It's fascinatingly corrupt. Like, if you're going to do corruption, you know, I understand the trying to be the best at corruption. And these folks really put some effort into their corrupt activities. But that is the police uh, chief, city clerk, and police officer in the city of White, Georgia. Uh, let's jump over to Illinois in DeKalb County. We have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, An Illinois police department has opened an excessive use of force investigation after social media footage appeared to show an officer placing a man in a chokehold during an arrest. And I'm going to pause here. I'm not going to tell you what the crime is until the end. So I want you to think about what could possibly merit being choked out on the pavement. And I'm going to note, this is a bystander video where this guy was choked until he passed out. Story continues. The DeKalb Police Department in Northern Illinois said it was reviewing footage and witness statements in connection with the arrest of 25-year-old Elante McDowell, a black man who was placed in a chokehold and tased by white police officers last week. McDowell's girlfriend, Alyssa Retuerto, captured the August 24th arrest on video and posted it to Facebook with the caption, subquote, for you guys to decide, is this right or wrong? She can be heard pleading with the officers in the video, asking why they needed to use a taser while McDowell was pinned to the ground and in a chokehold. Subquote, he has a pulse, right? Like, you guys, can you make sure that he has a pulse? Because look at his face, she says in the recording. His face does look pretty gray. Uh, the department said officers pulled the couple over after getting a tip about a man carrying, subquote, a load of drugs, according to a statement released Tuesday. Officers said they discovered, subquote, a felony amount of cannabis from the vehicle and attempted to place McDowell in custody, but he tried to flee the scene. Now, we're going to cover a couple notes here. Uh, turns out that the city eventually released dash cam videos several days after all of this went viral. They don't show this guy attempting to flee. They show him lunge forward, but you don't know if he's trying to run or trying to go after an officer or whatever else. He gets tackled by three of them, choked out and tased. Now, if that's not overkill in itself, notice how they talk about the tip that he was carrying, subquote, a load of drugs and the reference to a felony amount of cannabis. Well, what you find is that they found, quote, between one and 3.5 ounces of marijuana. Now, that's not a lot. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to like Moe's or some of these other restaurants where you can get the little containers of queso. You know, the tiniest possible container is two ounces. That's that's not much. It's a very tiny amount. Like, I've got people that I've defended who have that much just stored in a mason jar in their room so they can smoke it as they see fit. Like, that's a teeny tiny amount of weed, and they didn't find anything else. So this was a bogus-ass tip, and they, you know, basically went overkill on this particular guy for not much of anything to be honest. And of course, the video is worse than the story. So we're going to give you a link to it so you can see it for yourself. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, but we'll give you a link. Also in Illinois, in Eureka, we have a nine-year-old charged with murder. And this is this whole story is just bizarre. Um, so from the story, it says, quote, a nine-year-old has been charged with five counts of first-degree murder in connection with a lethal mobile home fire in April near Goodfield. 
The juvenile also has been charged with two counts of arson and one count of aggravated arson, Woodford County State's Attorney Greg Minger said. The identity of the suspect was not revealed, given that person's age. Minger would not divulge additional details about the subject, including a possible relationship to the victims. His decision to prosecute came six months following the blaze on April 6th that killed two adults and three children in a residence at Timberline Mobile Home Park. The fire began shortly after 11 p.m. on a Saturday. The trailer was engulfed in flames by the time firefighters arrived a few minutes later. And we'll give you some links to the stories. The young man, well, young boy, I mean, he's nine, didn't even qualify as a young man yet, is the son of one of the women who lived in the trailer. And among the people who died were her husband, her parents, and two of her younger kids. One was two and one was one. Uh, she claims to the news that this was an accident. The police are charging this nine-year-old with first-degree murder. And I, I get that sometimes you have to have accountability for stuff like that. I mean, multiple people died. That's a problem. But how do you prove a nine-year-old has the intent to kill people? It, it's just it's weird to me. So like under the common law rule in Britain, we used to have what was called the rule of sevens. If you were under the age of seven years old, you did not have the capacity to form intent. That was a bright line rule, no exceptions. If you were between 7 and 14, you were presumed to lack intent, but that was what's called a rebuttable presumption where the prosecution could show evidence that, in fact, you were capable of showing that intent. And then if you're above 14, you're presumed to have the intent, uh, and then it's rebuttable as well. So you can show diminished capacity like you would for adults and that sort of thing. That's what's known as the rule of sevens. It's not quite as rigid now. So like that's what we inherited back in colonial times when we split off, but the rule has you know changed a little bit. Uh, but still, I, just, I have a hard time thinking a nine-year-old can form the intent for first-degree murder. It's just it's strange to me. Uh, so that was in Illinois. Over in Kentucky... In Louisville, or Louisville, or however the fuck you pronounce it, no matter how I pronounce it, I usually pronounce it Louisville, and that gets me chewed out. I get a bunch of very angry messages on Twitter when these people hear it. I was told it's like Louisville or some shit like that. Uh, I don't live in Kentucky, so I don't actually know. But there is some what the fuckery taking place in this headline and the story itself, but I just want to read the headline and you let me know if something stands out to you as being just a little bit off. Uh, It says, quote, Ex-Kentucky officer gets five years for unwanted sex with five women. Ex-Kentucky officer gets five years for unwanted sex with five women. Rape. He raped them. I mean, it's like, how the hell do you call that unwanted sex? Like, what the fuck? Uh, From the story, it says, quote, A former Kentucky police officer has been sentenced to five years in prison for sexual misconduct. Again, he raped them. Uh, against five women who are now suing him over the assaults. News outlets report former Louisville officer Pablo Cano was sentenced Monday as part of a deal in which he admitted to having sex without consent with the women. Again, having sex without consent. He raped them uh, between 2015 and 2017. He was hired in 2015, resigned in 2017 while he was on administrative leave, pending an investigation into the first allegation. Several of the five lawsuits pending against him now accuse him of rape. Prosecutors didn't go that far, citing questions about evidence of his use of force or physical threats. Well, if he 
pled to it that he had sex without consent. That's fucking rape, y'all. So we've got unwanted sex, sexual misconduct, sex without consent. Three different euphemisms in this one fucking news story because a police officer raped the women. But then they throw in this tiny little sentence at the end, all the way at the bottom, assuming you're not going to read it. He also pleaded guilty Monday to possessing child porn. Holy fuck. We have another kitty diddler on the force. It's fucking ridiculous. And the media is going out of their way to soft pedal the shit out of this particular story. Uh, So that was in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, In Maryland, in Baltimore, we have the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary. And this is one of two different stories where I think that's the one. Hang on. I got a couple more. One in New York where the DAs are doing what they're supposed to do and finally exposing these dirty-ass cops after people have forced their hand. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Baltimore State's attorney Marilyn Mosby has begun asking the courts to throw out nearly 800 criminal cases handled by 25 city police officers, saying she found reason to distrust more than a dozen cops in addition to the eight convicted in the gun trace task force scandal. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, these additional officers had not previously been disclosed by her office. Three of them remain with the Baltimore police, a police spokesman said. Those three are Robert Hankard, a detective in central Baltimore, Kenneth Ivory, a sergeant in southwest Baltimore, and Jason Giordano, a sergeant in the citywide robbery unit. That's fucking ironic. Uh, Hankard has been suspended. They did not respond to a message to the department. She said that all of the names her office released this week are included in court filings by her attorneys to vacate the nearly 800 cases handled by the tainted officers. At least seven other unnamed officers are still connected to the dismissed cases. Mosby declined to identify them, saying they may remain under federal investigation. She directed questions to the United States Attorney's Office in Baltimore. A spokeswoman there declined to comment. At least 10 officers cited have resigned. One retired and one was fired. One other officer, Detective Sean Souter, was shot to death nearly two years ago in West Baltimore. I'm going to note that was the guy who was set up by his fellow officers because he was scheduled to testify in the federal trial where several of the other task force members were being federally indicted. Story continues, quote, most of these men have not been charged with a crime, but nearly all of them were named in testimony during the federal gun trace task force trial. Mosby says her office has no choice. The integrity of their cases is now compromised. Sub quote, when you have sworn police officers involved in egregious and longstanding criminal activity, such as planning guns and drugs, stealing drugs and money, selling drugs, making illegal arrests and bringing false charges, our legal and ethical obligation in the pursuit of justice leaves us no no other recourse but to right the wrongs of unjust convictions associated with corrupt police officers, Mosby wrote in an email. Good for her. Uh, prosecutors began asking the courts this week to undo nearly 800 convictions that hinged on investigations by or testimony from those 25 officers. So kudos to attorney Mosby and her office for doing the right thing and vacating these old convictions. The officers involved in the gun trace task force are corrupt as fuck. Several of them are going to federal prison. And it's nice to see that they're at least trying to make some effort to uh, remediate. I can't think of the right word. Remedy? Fix. Trying to fix the fuck-ups that these dirty cops helped put into place. Uh, Up in New York, we got a few different cases in uh, New York City. One of them is actually super long, and it's a similar, uh, similar story from Maryland. But let's go first. Uh, with this whole situation with a perv cop who's been acquitted of rape now, 
even though he's been convicted of witness tampering. So we talked about this guy, Raul Omeda, back in episode 32 in 2017. These stories take a while. Uh, he's the one who was fucking a 15-year-old girl, raping a 15-year-old girl because 15-year-olds can't consent to have sex with police officers. Uh, was finally charged with it and has been acquitted by a jury. From that story, it says, quote, A former Bronx NYPD cop accused of having sex with a 15-year-old prostitute and recording their trysts was acquitted of felony rape and sex abuse charges at trial but convicted of official misconduct and witness tampering. At the close of a nearly month-long trial, a jury found ex-police officer Raul Omeda not guilty of having sex with the minor, but did find him guilty of encouraging her not to testify at his trial. He was also accused of accessing NYPD computers to see what kind of evidence the Internal Affairs Bureau had against him. He was ultimately convicted of official misconduct and tampering with a witness. Misdemeanor crimes that are a far cry from the felony rape, sex abuse, child endangerment and using a child in a sexual performance charges he was facing. Omeda was remanded to custody until his sentencing on October 17th. He is facing at most one year in jail. Omeda was accused of recording his sexual encounters with the 15-year-old girl on at least five occasions. He met the teen through her older sister, whom the cop had dated. He paid the teen between $140 and $200 apiece, investigators alleged. The teen told police of her relationship with Omeda after she was arrested for prostitution. But when Omeda was confronted with the recordings of him having sex with the teen, he refused to admit that he knew the victim, according to testimony brought out at the trial. He also denied being the man having sex with the teen in the photos, which were found on his computer and cell phone. Nor would he identify his bedroom and living room furniture, which were also in the photos. Besides the salacious videos and photos, cops searching his computer found a creepy PowerPoint presentation of other women with whom he had had sex, a compilation he called The List. He was also recorded having a conversation with the 15-year-old girl, advising her to lay low as internal affairs investigated him. Subquote, technically you are a minor, Olmeda told the teen according to court records. Ugh. It's just, ugh. It's fucking gross. Like, this guy needs to... <sighs> these are your tax dollars at work. These are the people that police departments hire and put in charge of serving and protecting the rest of us. Uh, so there's that. Also in New York City, the district attorney's office has released some of its internal files on police dishonesty, what we call Brady lists. Uh, basically, so Brady versus Maryland, if there's exculpatory evidence, you're required to turn it over to the defense uh, and dirty cops are part of that. If the officer who's done the arrest or is going to testify uh, can't be trusted for whatever reason, the district attorney's office is supposed to disclose that to the defense. So now what the DA's office is doing is sharing that with the public, which is absolutely appropriate. Glad they're doing it. From a story, it says, quote, The Bronx District Attorney's Office has released its internal files on police dishonesty, the first DA's office in the city to make such records available to the public. The documents came in response to a Freedom of Information Law request by WNYC. The records include references to media articles and dozens of findings from judges discrediting or casting doubt on officers' testimony. In April, WNYC broke news that all five borough prosecutors are compiling secret databases tracking police officers with questionable credibility. I'm going to pause here. I don't know how much of this is is secret. I'm putting secret in air quotes because, again, they're required to do this. DAs are supposed to keep track of dirty police because you can't put them on the stand and suborn perjury and that sort of thing. 
Uh, maybe there's some, I've not read the April WNYC news, so maybe there's something different about this that makes it a secret database. But just know this is normal criminal justice stuff. Uh, story continues, quote, the in-house lists contain lawsuit records and findings of dishonesty from judges and police review bodies. Prosecutors maintain these records because they are legally obligated to turn over information that may undermine police witnesses' trustworthiness. The Bronx DA released 11 pages of documents with heavy redactions, citing privacy and other exemptions from the public records law. But WNYC was able to identify a few officers whose credibility issues were previously kept secret from most of New York City's defense bar. For example, one of the records is a May 28, 2019 email from federal prosecutors at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York to the Bronx DA's office, which is also in the Southern District. NYPD officers often work with federal prosecutors, especially on gun cases. The email contains names of five Bronx and Manhattan officers whose credibility was challenged by federal judges between January and May of 2019. Before now, only one of those officers was known to the Legal Aid Society, New York's public defender organization, which has been building its own officer misconduct database for years in concert with other defender organizations. And the story goes on from there. I've got an extended excerpt that I'm not going to read you because we're already 36 minutes in on this episode. Uh, but for example, there's an officer, Jonathan Cantazaro and Donovan Bunch, uh, where they pulled a guy over and claimed to smell weed. But then when you look at the body cam, the window was already open. They only noticed an open container. There was no reference to smelling weed until they had the guy roll down the rear window, which the smell would have come out the front window just the same. Uh, did a full-ass search. Didn't really find anything except for one particular uh, no, they didn't find anything at all. The police found no marijuana, no cigarettes, or otherwise anywhere in the car. And the judge basically said, quote, I believe the officers lied under oath on the stand when they said they smelled marijuana and that that is what occasioned the search of the car. And it's just, it goes on from there. There's a lot to this story, but it's pretty damning stuff, which of course, again, that is the purpose of these Brady lists because when you have so many police, because we over-police the fuck out of everything in this country, you also have a lot of dirty cops as a result of it. So we will give you that link in the show notes and you can go from there. Oh, sorry, hang on. I, I can't move on yet. <laughs> so one of the officers who, again, has been documented lying under oath, whose testimony does not fit with his body cam footage, is super pissed at the judge. So when the news contacted him to ask for his quote, the first thing he says is, quote, I think she's a complete nutbag. I've had cases where I smelled weed, didn't find anything, and it stuck. Like, that's one of those spots where you're telling on yourself. You know, I've had cases where I smelled this thing that didn't exist, and it was allowed. That's a fucking problem. Uh, but we'll give you a link to the whole story. You can check it out and have some fun. Uh, in Pennsylvania, in Chester Township, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And this one, there, there are a couple stories between this and two of them down in Texas where I read them and I just I think back to what triggered the American Revolution. Like, not even going to bullshit you. Like, it's something where I think back to 1776 and, you know, what became the Fourth Amendment back in 1788, 89. Um, it's just, it's so fucking outrageous, the shit that we allow to take place by police. But we allow it because it happens to black people, so we're like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, even though if it happened to white folks, you have a revolution in a constitutional amendment. 
Uh, so this is in Chester Township, and God, people who live in a home were arrested for being in their own yard playing, and then when they got released, went back to their yard and got arrested again by the same fucking officer for the same thing. From the story, it says, quote, a video of predominantly white police officers in Delaware County arresting a black family in front of their home for loitering is raising a lot of questions and concerns, and the family is now fighting back against Chester Township Police Department. It's been a little more than a week since everything happened, but Rachel Briggs is still shaken up by the ordeal that took place on her lawn. She said that everything started the day before when Officer Pasquale Storis III, like that doesn't sound like a white fucking name, uh, arrested her sons and her nephew for loitering while they were playing in the front yard. Subquote, the gentlemen were taken to jail. They had high bails placed on them. The family scrambled to get their money together and they were able to get them out the next day, she explained. When the young men, who were black, were released from jail, they were greeted by family members on that same lawn where they were arrested. That's when Officer Storis, Pasquale Storis III, who is white, showed up and decided to rearrest them again, as well as several other members of the family. The family says they were not going against any of the township's loitering statutes. Statutes, Mincy said, were deemed unconstitutional in 2012. Kevin Mincy is the family's lawyer, by the way. I should have mentioned that. Uh, the video of the incident taken by a family member is graphic in nature and contains profanities. Viewer discretion is advised. It's really the way the family acted is totally fucking appropriate. So I wouldn't say viewer discretion is advised. The outrageous part is that police officers can arrest you for just chilling in your own lawn. What the fuck is the point of having a lawn if you can't be in it? Uh, so that is in Chester Township, Pennsylvania. In Philadelphia, we do have some good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. Uh, a man has been cleared and is exonerated after spending three decades in prison for a murder he did not commit. From that story, it says, quote, Willie Vesey walked out of the Center City Courthouse just before 4 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday, his sister on his left arm and his mother by his side. He had new clothes, new shoes, and for the first time in 27 years, he no longer could be labeled a murderer. A judge in the morning had vacated Vesey's conviction in the 1992 shooting death of a North Philadelphia man. Prosecutors said they believed he was innocent and would not seek to retry him. Vesey's exoneration marked the 10th time since District Attorney Larry Krasner assumed office last year that prosecutors in his conviction integrity unit have helped reverse a murder conviction. I'm going to note, they, the way this is written, 10th time since he took office last year, which would have been 2017 January, undersells, or 2018 January, undersells how many of these exonerations have taken place. There have been eight exonerations in Philadelphia just in calendar year 2019. We're only 10 months into the year, and you've had eight murder convictions overturned because the people who were found guilty were, in fact, innocent all the fucking long. Think about that for a minute. Uh, story continues, quote, A jury deliberated for four days in 1993 before convicting Vesey of second-degree murder and related counts. He was automatically sentenced to life without parole. No one else was ever charged in the crime. Vesey and his attorneys argued that his trial attorneys were unaware that the arresting officers, a Devlin and Worrell, I don't have their first names, uh, who were partners, had a pattern and practice of coercing confessions out of other defendants arrested around the same time. They pointed to several other convictions that have since been overturned, including one against Anthony Wright, 
who said that Officer Devlin assaulted him before forcing him to falsely confess to raping and killing a neighbor in Nicetown. Devlin has long denied that allegation. Wright, originally convicted in 1993, was acquitted in a retrial in 2016 after DNA proved a different man had done it. Uh, VZ's case also is one of several that has been covered on the Undisclosed podcast. Uh, several of those have actually now resulted in exonerations. So if you don't listen to Undisclosed, give it a listen. Uh, so that is in Pennsylvania. Let's get down to Texas because Texas, oh boy, we got four stories in Texas. And it's it's Texas is something else, man. Uh, two of them are in Dallas. So there's good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Uh, Amber Geiger, the killer cop who summarily executed Botham Jean in his own apartment, has been convicted of murder by a fucking jury. Holy shit. From that story, it says, quote, A Dallas County jury on Tuesday convicted Amber Geiger of murdering Botham Jean in his apartment last year in a trial that renewed international outrage over white police officers killing unarmed black men. Jean's mother raised her arms in exultation as cheers broke out in the hallway outside the courtroom when the verdict was announced shortly after 1030 in the morning, following just five hours of deliberation by the jury. Geiger, 31, fatally shot 26-year-old Jean in his apartment last year. She was off duty, but still in uniform when she shot Jean with her service weapon. She had said she mistook his apartment for her own and thought Jean was a burglar. She is the first Dallas officer convicted of murder since the 1970s. Jurors deliberated for three hours Monday after the prosecution and Geiger's defense presented closing arguments. They quickly delivered a verdict after two more hours Tuesday morning. So after jury deliberation, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. She will be eligible for parole after five years. That's my understanding from Texas folks. Uh, And, you know, that's a very brief sentence. For a murder, that's an exceptionally brief sentence. That's just not how normal sentencing happens. Um, But at the same time, in North Carolina... If you were convicted of manslaughter, you'd probably get about five years, you know, not for first degree murder, but for manslaughter, five years is not unusual. But the fact that there was a conviction at all is amazing. You know, we get prosecutions on occasion, not often, but then when we do get prosecutions, the DA's offices tend to do a shit job or the juries buy the badge, like they have this bias in favor of police. And you get acquittals on stuff that's just, you know, fucking obvious. You know, even hung juries, you know, in South Carolina with Walter Scott, where you've got video of a police officer shooting a man in the back and then planting a taser on his dead body rather than performing CPR, that ended in a hung jury. That guy almost got acquitted. The only reason why he's doing any prison time is because there was going to be a recharge. You know, they're going to go after him again. Um, So it's amazing to me that there was a conviction. I watched the closing arguments and the district attorney actually did a very good job. Uh, I I do a lot of trial team coaching. So I critiqued some of his stuff, probably more so than I should. He paced a lot. He had a lot of ums and ahs in his speech, you know, stuff we try and coach our advocates at central to try and not do. But in terms of his structure of the argument and what he said and how he went about it, it was just incredibly good. And not only was it good, it was brief. So you had this multi-day, multi-week trial, and he condensed that stuff down to the very essence and managed to give a closing in about 20 minutes, and it was good. Uh, So if you've not seen it, check it out. But Amber Geiger, killer cop with Dallas PD, has now been convicted of murder. Uh, But of course, you can't have good news without bad news. One of the key witnesses was actually executed in his own parking lot days later, and we don't know how or why. 
Uh, story says, quote, a key witness in Amber Geiger's murder trial was shot and killed Friday evening at an apartment complex near Dallas's medical district. And I'm going to note, this is the apartment complex where both Geiger and Botham John lived. Uh, from the story, it says, continues, Joshua Brown, a neighbor of Botham John's and Geiger at the Southside Flats apartments, was slain about 10.30 p.m. Brown, 28, lived across the hall from John and testified about the night he was killed. A preliminary investigation shows Brown was shot in the back and thigh. On Friday night, several witnesses flagged down police and directed them to Brown's location. Police found him on the ground with multiple gunshot wounds. Witnesses told police they heard several gunshots and saw a silver four-door sedan speeding out of the parking lot. Uh, so the police, since this story broke, have arrested three individuals uh, for involvement in the murder. We don't really know what happened. The Dallas police narrative that they put out doesn't make any sense. They were basically arguing these guys were from Louisiana and drove four and a half hours just to buy weed, and the weed sale went bad, and then it ended in a shootout. And, and now look, I've represented a lot of weed users. I've represented a lot of weed dealers. Shootouts happen. Bad drug buys happen. No one is driving nine hours round trip from Louisiana to buy Texas weed. There's perfectly good weed in Louisiana. We know that because Louisiana prosecutes the fuck out of it. So it doesn't make sense that you would drive across state lines four and a half hours one way, four and a half hours back just to buy weed, just to shoot your supplier and leave without money or the product. Either The whole thing just doesn't make sense. Now, it could be possible that there was some pre-existing bad blood between these guys and Brown. So I'm not saying that this was done by Dallas police. I'm not saying they engineered it to be a hit, that sort of thing. What I am saying is that their story that they presented to the public doesn't make a lick of damn sense to any fucking buddy who has sold drugs, used drugs, bought drugs, or represented drug dealers. It just doesn't add up. Uh, but of course, that investigation will be ongoing, and we will see what happens. But before we even got that far, just 30 minutes across the street in Fort Worth, uh, you have Botham John Part 2, what we call the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new names and new jurisdictions, where a white Fort Worth police officer shot a black woman dead in her own fucking house while she was playing video games with her nephew for no goddamn reason. From that story, it says, quote, Firing through a window, a white Fort Worth officer fatally shot a black woman inside her home early Saturday after police were called to the house because its doors were open, according to police and the neighbor who summoned them. A Tatiana Jefferson, 28, died in a bedroom, according to the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's tongue-tied, goodness, according to the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office. Officers responded at 2.25 in the morning to the house in the 1200 block of East Allen Avenue. James Smith, who called a non-emergency police number, said he saw the doors were open and the lights were on, which struck him as unusual. He knew Jefferson, his neighbor, was home with her 8-year-old nephew. Police parked around the corner. So again, we're talking across the street. They don't come up in the driveway. They park around the corner, and the woman could not see them. About 15 minutes later, he said he heard a loud bang and saw several more officers rush inside. Body-worn camera video released shows two officers using flashlights to check the perimeter of the house, inspecting two doors that are open with closed screen doors. At the back of the house, one officer appears to see a figure through a dark window, and he quickly twists his body to the left. Put your hands up, show me your hands, he shouts, with his gun drawn. He then fires a single shot through the window. In the video, he never identifies himself as a police officer. 
Jefferson was playing video games with her nephew when they heard what they believed to be a prowler outside, according to the relative's attorney. When she went to the window to see what was going on, she was shot. Police said that the officer who joined the department in April of 2018 saw a person standing inside the house near a window. It, it, this is such bullshit. Subquote, perceiving a threat, the officer drew his duty weapon and fired one shot, striking the person inside the residence. Officers entered the residence, locating the individual and a firearm and began providing emergency medical care. Let's ponder the abject fucking bullshit of that particular statement. Number one. She was in her own goddamn house. Number two, they never identified themselves as police as they're walking through her backyard with flashlights looking at open doors. Number three, we've got the castle doctrine in this country in addition to the second fucking amendment. You can have as many fucking guns as you want in your house to blow away people who are trying to burglarize you, which guess what? If people are in your backyard with a flashlight, never announce themselves as police, it's a reasonable fucking thing to think, oh shit, I need to get my gun and be prepared to shoot this fucking person. But number four, they never say she had the gun. They said they found the gun in the house. Notice the bullshit wording that they put on this shit to try and make it seem like there was a threat, okay? Officers entered the residence, locating the individual and a firearm. They just happened to locate those two things. They don't say they located the firearm near her, didn't say they located the firearm on her. They just said they found her, and while they were going through the entire fucking house, they happened to find a gun. Fuck you, Fort Worth Police Department. You're a bunch of fucking morons, okay? Again, so let me continue. Police released, photo police released photographs of a gun they said they found in a bedroom at the house. Not the bedroom she was in. They didn't say that. They just happened to find a gun in the bedroom. Well, guess what? That's where you tend to keep a gun. I keep my Smith & Wesson 9mm with all 17 rounds in the magazine in my bedroom because that's where I happen to sleep, which is the most likely time that someone's going to try and break in. If I'm awake and I'm in the living room and someone breaks in, I'm going to run for the bedroom and grab my gun and go shoot somebody. But if police came in through my front door right now and shot me dead, they would find my dead body and they would find a firearm in a bedroom, which is what happened here, even though I didn't actually have the gun trying to kill them at the time I was executed. This is just such bonkers ass bullshit. Anyhow, so I'll give you a link to the story. I don't mean to rant at you more so than usual, but again... When this sort of thing happened to white people back in the 1700s, when you had government employees coming into their homes on a whim, killing them where they sleep for no reason, you had the American fucking revolution. You had a revolutionary war and what would become the Fourth Amendment. Let's read the Fourth Amendment. Let, let, me, let me put that out there and, and have these words marinate on your brain on what they fucking mean. The Fourth Amendment starts, and I quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. When you're shot, you're seized. That's what the case law says. You can't go anywhere as you want because you've been fucking shot by a government employee. And it's not reasonable for a police officer to show up for a goddamn welfare check because your door happens to be open and your lights are on and you get shot dead for it. In no normal, liberty-loving country does that make any fucking sense at all. So when that happened to white folks, you get a revolution in the constitutional amendment. But when it happens to black folks today, you get excuses like perceiving a threat and bullshit like qualified immunity. 
So we'll see what happens with this particular officer. I hope he gets the same type of crucifixion that they did to Amber Geiger and hopefully hopefully serves a lot more time. Uh, so that's in Fort Worth in Houston. And this is, again, this is just government incompetence. A guy who was out on bond awaiting a murder trial had one of those GPS ankle monitors, stopped paying the money for the monitoring. So the company just stopped monitoring him. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a man is back behind bars after his GPS ankle monitor was repossessed by the company who owned it for non-payment. In June, Clint Walker was released on a $100,000 surety bond. He is accused of shooting and killing 59-year-old Enrique Garcia during an attempted robbery at a North Harris County game room in November of 2016. The Harris County District Attorney's Office said guarding public safety, the private company who owned the monitor, did not alert the court that they took the monitor back on September 19th until afterwards. Subquote, the vendor that was monitoring Mr. Walker was upset with him being $305 behind in his monitoring fees said David Mitchum, the assistant district attorney. When defendants are required to wear ankle monitors, they are able to choose between four companies to facilitate it. Walker used guarding public safety to provide the GPS monitor. He was unmonitored for about two weeks before he was arrested again on October 2nd. (laughs) Holy shit. That's just, that's utterly incompetent and it's amazing. Uh, So that is the state by state criminal justice fuckery for America. Every now and again, we do cover stuff in foreign countries, and this is a plea deal in Australia in Victoria. From that story, it says, quote, A drug addict dressed up as a police officer before storming an associate's home, screaming, This is a police raid, and where are your drugs? Thinking he was the real deal, Daniel Thomas's two victims handed over their ice, which I guess is the Australian word for methamphetamine, uh, and cannabis, which is the Australian word for weed, before being beaten so badly with a hammer that the real police thought they had died. Subquote, this is a police raid. Get on the floor face down. Where are your drugs? Thomas and a co-accused yelled as they walked into the unlocked home on July 25th of 2016. Thomas believed the men were holding back and beat one of them with a hammer until he passed out. Legitimate police officers later arrived to find blood-stained walls and floors and believed the men had died, so they began taking photos of their bodies. Officers realized their mistake when one of the men moved. In Victoria's Supreme Court on Tuesday, Thomas was jailed for 11 and a half years and must serve nine years before being eligible for parole. He pleaded guilty to aggravated burglary and a series of other charges. Now, normally this is just a run-of-the-mill arrest for assault, burglary, that sort of thing. But it's what happens when we let people indiscriminately raid other people's homes over things like drugs, and all we have is clothes and a badge to distinguish them. You know, if someone showed up at my door in police clothes with a badge saying, where are your drugs? I, I would know it's bullshit because I don't actually do any drugs, but I'm not surprised if a drug user would let them in. And maybe show them stuff. So it's a it's a pretty sweet gig if you want to impersonate a police officer and you know who the drug users are. You could probably stockpile quite a bit of shit. Uh, but again, this goes back to my whole point that in all of the English-speaking countries, everywhere that used to be a British colony, we have really jumped the shark when it comes to allowing police to do whatever the fuck they want. And it's a problem. Uh, So that's all of the criminal justice fuckery for this episode. Let's jump into our Law 140 on, again, I have to emphasize, an overview of the appellate process that is not Texas-specific.
So I mentioned at the top of the show that the lawsuit filed by voice actor Vic Mignogna, or Mignogna, however the fuck you pronounce his last name, has been dismissed in its entirety. And we knew that was going to happen because, you know, a lot of us are adults and we're able to dispassionately look at lawsuits and see utter crap for what it is. Uh, A lot of the people that are Vic's fans were apparently stunned and they are now convinced that the judge is biased and all of this is bullshit and they're going to win on appeal and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And that is incredibly entertaining and also terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, But people have been asking, well, what happens with appeals? How does that all work? So if you go all the way back two years now to our very first episode, I provided a basic overview of the judiciary. So some of this is going to be a repeat, but essentially you have your trial level courts that deal with, they're the front lines of stuff. So this is where the trials first take place. If there's a trial or there's a plea or there's, it's disposed on a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, all that happy horseshit that happens at the trial level. That's where you receive evidence. This is where you determine facts. This is where jurors hear witnesses. All of that happens with the trial courts. And then you usually have multiple layers of appeals. Now, appeals are created by statute. They're creatures of statute. They don't exist as like a constitutional right. So what you get, well, let me, let me paraphrase that. They don't exist as a federal United States constitutional right. So the requirements for due process that are in the 5th and 14th Amendments, all that that requires is notice of the claims being made and an opportunity to be heard before a neutral decision maker. That is it. Now, there's additional contours as to when that notice and hearing have to be provided, that sort of thing. We covered that in our due process basics. But there's no right to an appeal as part of the federal constitution. Now, some state constitutions might have that in there. I don't know all 50 state constitutions, so it's possible. But most of the time, your right to appeal is created by statute. So we call those appeals as of right. So it's not a right, it's as of a right because it's created by statute. That is different from a discretionary appeal where you have to file what's called a writ of certiorari with the appellate court and basically ask them to consider your case. So you go through your trial court stuff, you don't like the outcome, you get one appeal as of right, and then beyond that, whether you get additional appeals depends on the particular state and how their judiciary is set up. So like in North Carolina, if you appeal and one judge dissents at the court of appeals level, you have an additional appeal as of right to the Supreme Court. But if it's unanimous, you have to ask the Supreme Court's permission to consider it. Uh, But if there's a dissent, the Supreme Court of North Carolina will hear the case automatically upon your filing of the appeal. You also have what are called interlocutory appeals. So these are appeals before everything is done. Normally, you have to finish stuff at the trial court. That has to be what's called a final judgment. So you're either going to a jury and the jury has reached its verdict, or there's been a summary judgment ruling that disposes of all the causes of action. It has to be finished, and then you appeal. Well, an interlocutory appeal happens early. So again, this is another thing that gets created by statute, and you can have statutory times to do an interlocutory appeal, or whenever it affects what is called a substantial right. So, for example, given the work that I do, you'll often see it with qualified immunity, where if a judge denies qualified immunity to the police, the appellate courts have decided that qualified immunity is a substantial right, and the appellate courts will review that denial before the case itself finishes, before there is a final judgment. 
So then you have different types of appellate courts. So certain states like North Carolina, we have one appeals court for the entire state. So it is the North Carolina Court of Appeals, and they sit in what are called panels. So there will be three judges, and the judges are chosen at random, and they get assigned cases at random, and those three judges make the appellate decision. You also have what is called in-bank review. We don't have that in North Carolina, but some states do, where all of the judges of the statewide court of appeals will rehear a case if they don't like how a particular three-judge panel decided. Uh, And then for certain states like Texas, you have a circuit-style court of appeals where different geographic areas in the state have their own mini court of appeals that hears cases originating within that particular jurisdiction. So we have that in the federal system where you have United States district courts in each state, and then that's divvied up into federal circuits. Some of the bigger states have imported that same thing for their state appellate practice. And then you have what is called the court of last resort. That is the Supreme Court of North Carolina here. Um, Some states are weird. So like in New York, the trial court is called the Supreme Court. The first level appellate court is called the Supreme Court Appellate Division, and then the court of last resort is called the New York Court of Appeals. Uh, But that's basically the setup. There's a trial-level court, there's an intermediate appellate court where your appeals as of right go first, and then there is a court of last resort. So that is the basic structure. Of course, your court of last resort, their rulings are binding on all the courts beneath them, court of appeals binding on all the courts beneath them, and so on and so forth. So what happens after a judgment? Well, there's a process where you have to actually, what's called, perfect the appeal. You have to go through certain procedural formalities to actually give the Court of Appeals jurisdiction to hear the appeal in the first place. So, for example, you have to file a notice of appeal that's universal everywhere. If you don't give notice of appeal, we don't know you've appealed, therefore the Court of Appeals can't consider it. So you have to file your notice of appeal You have to serve that notice on the other side so the other parties know you've appealed as well. Uh, A lot of times, if there's been a hearing of some kind, the party that is appealing has to arrange to have a transcript done of the hearing. Uh, There's some scenarios where that doesn't factor in. We're going to cover why that matters in a minute. But basically, if there's ever a time where there's a jury trial or a hearing where evidence was considered, there needs to be a written transcript of the hearing to provide to the Court of Appeals. Uh, And then you have to create what is called the record on appeal, which is the set of paper documents that the Court of Appeals considers. And typically, this is all the stuff that's been filed in the case, plus the transcripts. There's no new evidence. There's not any witness testimony thrown in. There is nothing new given to the Court of Appeals that was not already given to the trial court. So once you do those things, you file the notice, you arrange the transcript, you create the record on appeal... You have what's called perfected the appeal, and the Court of Appeals will get around to it eventually. Uh, If you don't do those things, you miss the notice, you miss the record, something like that, the appeal can actually be dismissed before the Court of Appeals ever considers it. That's called dismissing an appeal for want of jurisdiction. The Court of Appeals has not been given jurisdiction over the case, therefore the appeal gets dismissed. So once the appeal is perfected, there's a given time clock where the parties will file their briefs with the court to argue why the court should rule in their favor. So whoever the person is, plaintiff or defendant, if they appeal, they are called the appellant. They are the person asking the court of appeals for some kind of review. If they're responding, 
That person is called the appellee. It doesn't matter which side you were at the trial level. If you're asking for the review, you're the appellant. If you're not, you're the appellee. And sometimes, frankly, the courts will refer to both. So they'll say the plaintiff appellant or the plaintiff appellee, the defendant appellant, the defendant appellee. There's been a transition, if you will, not really accepted everywhere, but they're working on it where we just drop those words entirely and they just refer to them as plaintiff and defendant, just like you did at the trial level. Uh, but just kind of know if you see the words, you don't know what they mean. That's what they are. So typically the appellant, the person asking for the appellate review, then has a period of time after the record is filed to do their brief. Usually it's 30 days. Uh, then after that, the appellee files a response brief. That also typically is after 30 days. And then the appellant has a chance to file a reply brief addressing what's in the response. Uh, so total time frame from the time the record is filed, the time the appeal is perfected, is usually 90 to 100 days for all the briefs to get done. Sometimes there's oral arguments. They're actually not as common as people think. They're, they're common in the fact they happen often, but in the grand scheme of all appealed cases, they're fairly rare. Uh, and then once that is done, you got your record, you got your briefs, you may or may not have had oral arguments, then you sit and wait. And you wait for the appellate court to get around to it. Now, most appeals for most boring things take two to three, sometimes longer years for the appeal court to get to it just because of volume. Now, sometimes with certain kinds of cases, they'll do an expedited review. So my understanding from the Texas folks is that certain districts in Texas – so. When I say the circuit courts of appeals federally, Texas has district courts of appeal. Uh, several of the districts apparently treat TCPA, that's the Texas Citizens Participation Act, their version of an anti-slap statute. Uh, some of those districts treat that as an expedited appeal where they got to get to it sooner. Uh, but most of the time, you're looking anywhere from as short as one year to as many as three years. It somewhere falls in that range. Um, and during that time, there's really no updates. There's nothing new happening. You're just sitting and waiting for the court to get around to it. Now, what the court is going to look at is the record, and they're going to consider the uh, issues or the assignments of error, depending on what your state is in. Uh, basically, the person seeking the appellate review has to point out to the court what the trial court did wrong. And the appellate court is going to apply what are called standards of review based on the particular legal issue that is being discussed. So we've got five of them, and what you see depends on the type of stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the five standards, and then we'll kind of go from there. I'm actually, I, two of them I'm only going to give you a little bit because they're only really applied to uh, agency decisions. But so you have de novo review, and when that happens, the appellate court doesn't give any deference at all to the lower court's decision. They apply the same standard that the district court would have, the trial court would have, uh, and it's like a do-over, basically. All of the evidence is in. There's no new evidence presented, but as far as the analysis of that evidence, the court of appeals starts from step one. Uh, then you have what is called clearly erroneous. This is used to, this is significantly deferential, if you will, where I'm going to give you an example from a United States Supreme Court case. They say, quote, review under the clearly erroneous standard is significantly deferential. That was from Concrete Pipe and Products versus Construction Laborers Pension Trust, a Supreme Court case from 1993. The appellate court must accept the trial court's findings unless it's left with, quote, 
a definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been committed. That is another Supreme Court case, Inwood Laboratories versus Ivy's Laboratories in 1982. Uh, and then you have the abuse of discretion standard. Now, under this standard, this is even more deferential, where basically if the trial court did something that is one of a number of acceptable outcomes, even if the appellate court disagrees with it, they have to accept it anyway. Uh, so under the abuse of discretion standard, an appellate court will, quote, uphold any district court determination that falls within a permissible range of permissible conclusions. That was a Supreme Court case, Cooter versus, or Cooter and Jell versus Hartmarks Corporation from 1990. Uh, under the abuse of discretion standard, the courts of appeals must affirm, they must affirm the trial judgment unless it determines that, quote, the district court has made a clear error of judgment or has applied an incorrect legal standard. So we have two others. You have what is called arbitrary and capricious uh, review, which basically means that an agency's conclusions will be upheld unless they're arbitrary and capricious. And then you have what is called the substantial evidence standard, which applies to the agency's findings of fact, as well as to jury verdicts. So you don't really see that all that often. It does exist. Uh, basically just means that if there is relevant evidence that a reasonable person could find and accept as being adequate to reach a conclusion it will be upheld. Uh, but those are mostly done in the context of executive agencies and these quasi-judicial bodies and their determinations. The main ones you see in the civil world for most of stuff going through the court from start to finish are de novo, clearly erroneous, and abuse of discretion. And the main fight at the appellate courts most of the time is what standard to apply. So for example, anything that is a conclusion of law is going to be reviewed de novo because you don't need to make any evidentiary rulings, judgments of witnesses' credibility, any of that stuff. You don't have to do any of that when it's a legal conclusion. So your conclusions of law will be reviewed de novo. Your findings of fact will be upheld unless they're clearly erroneous. So if there's a, uh, a some sort of hearing where a judge has taken witness testimony or considered discovery and makes findings of fact as part of the judgment, or a jury makes findings of fact a part of the judgment, uh, those get upheld unless they're clearly erroneous. And then anything that is a discovery decision usually gets upheld unless it's an abuse of discretion. So a lot of times in trials, judges make a lot of evidentiary rulings. There's an objection made, whether or not it's sustained. Uh, we did see some of these in the TCPA back and forth with the Mignogna case where Ty Beard uh, forged some affidavits. He committed notary fraud. He got called out for it and then unfiled the affidavits and attempted to file an amendment to his lawsuit, and the judge refused to consider it. That is treated as a discovery decision. It's like a motion to exclude the particular stuff and he accepted it. He said, okay, we're not going to allow this petition. So that aspect of it, if it comes up on appeal, will be upheld because the courts are going to use an abuse of discretion standard. I shouldn't say it will be upheld. It may be upheld, but the standard they're going to use is abuse of discretion because it relates to what evidence comes in or does not come in. Uh, so you take all that into account. You take into account the timeline. And basically what you're going to have happen is there's going to be a lot of activity after the appeal is filed. Most of your stuff is in the first 120 days with the briefs and the response briefs and the reply briefs. 
And then we're just going to sit around for two years and wait to see what happens. Uh, so in, in Mignogna's case, because it is a appeal of a grant of a TCPA motion, they have been dismissed with prejudice. Uh, the only thing that's going to be considered not de novo is that second amended petition. Everything else is a legal conclusion that is going to be reviewed de novo. Uh, did the defendants adequately show that the TCPA applied? That's the first prong. That's a legal conclusion. Uh, did the plaintiff present clear and specific evidence of each element of each claim against each defendant? That's the second step. All of those are legal conclusions. And then the third piece that the trial court never got to is did the defendants prove by a preponderance of the evidence they're given affirmative defenses. So even though Judge Chupp never reached that at the trial level, the appeals court will, because one of the things that Texas does and several other states do is that when a judge at the trial level makes a ruling, the appeals court will review the record, and if they can find any reason to uphold the trial finding, they will. Um, so that's just that's a state-specific practice, but it's not terribly uncommon. So the likely outcome of the appeal is that they're going to lose again. Like the odds of success, I'm putting at 0%. I can't imagine a scenario where this is going to turn out any better. And there are a couple reasons. One, Ty Beard, the attorney representing Vic Mignogna, he's an estates lawyer. He doesn't litigate. So when he has litigated this case, he has not done it with an eye towards a potential appeal. So the record is a fucking mess. So for example... When you're litigating a case and you're the plaintiff, when you file your motions for summary judgment or anything like that, you know, in this case, it would be his response to the TCPA. You never include your entire deposition as evidence. You take out the parts that are best for your case. You put them on separate sheets of paper, and that's what you submit to the court. You're not required to submit the whole thing, but that's what he did. So there are several pieces in Vic Mignogna's deposition where he admits to doing the things that he's claiming are defamatory. You know, people said he did these things. He's saying they defamed him by saying that, but then he himself admits it in his deposition. That's now going to be baked into the record on appeal. He can't keep that stuff out. It's now in. It's going to be seen by the Court of Appeals. Uh, there's no evidence anywhere given to the trial court about actual malice, which is a component for defamation where the plaintiff is a general public figure or a limited public figure. You have to prove that the speakers knew what they said was false or they thought it was false, but they said it anyway. That's what actual malice is. No evidence of that was ever presented. Uh, there's limited evidence that the statements were even false because, like I said, Vic admitted a lot of this stuff. And for his non-defamation claims, tortious interference with contracts, tortious interference with prospective business relations, vicarious liability, civil conspiracy, all that stuff, there's no evidence of damages at all. You know, he doesn't have to prove damages on defamation because the argument was that the statements were so bad they were defamatory per se and damages are presumed. Uh, but there's no evidence of damages on any of the other stuff. So given the way the appellate process works, where the only stuff the Court of Appeals, the Fifth Court of Appeals in Texas, which covers Fort Worth, all they're going to look at is this paper record, which is nothing but the paper filings plus the transcripts of the hearings. Once they get that and they see that and they see the stuff that Judge Chupp has had before him, they're going to affirm. There's no way they're going to overturn his rulings. Vic Mignogna is going to lose on appeal. It's not going to be close. 
And once it's done, the defendants are going to get additional attorney's fees. So because they won at the trial level with the TCPA motions, they automatically get their attorney's fees covered and an additional award of sanctions. Uh, But then because there's going to be an appeal, they will get their appellate fees covered as well. By the time this is all done, there will be a civil judgment against Vic Mignogna for all of their fees and costs. It's going to be at least a half million dollars. I think that's conservative. Um, But it's going to be a disaster. So that is the basic overview of the appellate process. Again, it is not Texas specific. It's federal and North Carolina specific to the extent we got specific. Uh, but a lot of this stuff is going to apply to Texas too, because the, the processes are pretty much the same everywhere with some very minor nuances. Um, but hopefully that gives you some insight on what's coming next. And basically it's a whole bunch of waiting. Uh, that's the gist of it. So if you have liked what you have heard, do us a favor, please leave us a review on iTunes or the, I guess it's now the podcast app, however you do it. There's been some changes there. Uh, we're also on Stitcher and Spotify and all these other apps. Leave us reviews because we've been gone for so long. Uh, we don't have a lot of current reviews and I like having current reviews. If you have any questions for us, please remember to tweet us using the hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag F-S-C-K. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care.